Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 167, Blood Raid versus Rising Sun. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers and our brand new producer, Peter, for joining the BGA team. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, we got a great episode. We've been putting this off for quite some time, but finally, the two major titans of Ameritrash Gaming are coming to battle in our Versus Arena, Blood Rage versus Rising Sun. Destruction everywhere, cats and dogs living together, giant miniatures, Eric Lang, just all over the place. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a good one because the number one thing everybody always asks is, I already have Blood Rage, do I need Rising Sun? Well, we're going to answer <gasps> that. We're going to answer it Can't wait to find you. out. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. Well, uh. we both have both, so I don't know. <laughs> we did the hard part for you, so you may not have to do the rest of it. So before we get into all of that, we wanted to bring you an update on what BGA is doing, especially Team BGA. And of course, everybody out there who's listening to the podcast is part of Team BGA and especially our Patreon backers who help us bring you an ad-free episode. This week, Peter joined us as a producer. And as a producer, we, which we want everyone to be a producer. He gets extra access to our Slack channel, which has all of our Patreon backers talking about board gaming getting access to myself, Anthony, and of course, Jason, and all of our featured content, our special episodes, which we're going to record another one later today. So if you're a Patreon backer, you're getting a lot of extra stuff. And as we've been talking about this, we want to give more back to our listeners. And we want to start a weekly contest where we're just giving you free games. So basically, for a little bit on your side, you're getting a lot on your side. Until that gets there, we wanted to start the contest anyway because we're just that excited. So we're giving a game from our own collection, brand new, out to one of our listeners. So, Anthony, we ran our computers. Who is our Patreon contest winner? Yeah, so we had a whole bunch of new people hopped on over the month of April. So thank you to everybody who did that. Hopefully you guys enjoy the bonus episode. Make sure you hop into the Slack board and let us know what you want to hear on bonus episodes because that's where we get the ideas. But we can only have one winner for the first month of our contest, and that is Jim. So Jim, congratulations. We're going to hit you up, and we're going to figure out what game you want to take from the collection. Well, thanks so much, Jim, for joining us on Team BGA. And if you out there aren't able to financially throw a little bit our way to help this podcast go, don't forget there's a lot of other ways you can do so. We need reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. If you already have liked us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Let other people know at the gaming table all the great things that BJ does, especially the fact that our entire catalog is available so you can go back and listen to previous episodes. Everything we're talking about is stuff that's hitting your table. So jump on iTunes, jump on to BoardGamersAnonymous.com. There's a ton of content there that I guarantee you haven't seen yet. And join Team BGA. All right, Anthony, that's everything that's going on with us. What's going on with our listeners? All righty, question of the week time. 
I asked everybody, and this came up because uh, of a game I played recently where somebody did this exact thing. But I asked, what's a game you can win while ignoring the key components of the game, the basic idea behind the game? Like, it's, let's say in Ticket to Ride, you could win without putting any trains down. You can't, but let's <laughs> say you could. It feels like that shouldn't happen, right? So I asked everybody, what's what situations come up that are like that? So we had a few good answers. Uh, Chrissy mentioned in Seven Wonders, you can pretty much build your science engine and ignore military if other people let you, which is kind of an important caveat when you're talking about uh, Seven Wonders. William mentioned Viticulture with the Tuscany expansion. He mentioned how you can win without ever competing for any purple cards or completing any purple cards. And then on Twitter, we had somebody mention, uh, Eric mentioned that he won Viticulture before without planting any grapes. So it seems like a game where you can kind of super specialize and go against the theme a little bit. Major Havoc on Twitter mentions how in Takedo, you absolutely don't need to collect any of the panoramic mm. cards, uh, which seems to go against the <laughs> idea of the game, right? You're supposed to be seeing things, doing stuff. No panoramas, just eating food. <laughs> Sam had a good one. He said, risk and monopoly. Just stall the game out long enough for your friends to quit. <laughs> Turn on a TV show or movie in the background, and then the game never finishes. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. I, I think this doesn't happen that often. Most games are play tested to the point where if, if the designer wants you to raise sheep, you will raise some sheep because you don't really have a choice if you want to win the game. But it's a fine line because if there's multiple things you should be doing, you don't want to get to the point where like, oh, this game has three things you could do to win. And that's it. You know, you want it to be variable. The one that made me think of this was we were playing Hashball Neck the other day and somebody won the game, legit won the game strictly through developments and did not mine any coal, which seems to go against the complete purpose of that game. I'm not going to mine any coal. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to build stuff and collect food. And I was like, that's not that's not cool, dude. <laughs> so, any games like that pop out for you? Well, I was recently reminded by this by our friend Ryan from the Whole Card, where he said, last time when I played Dinosaur Island, I only I guess genetically created or however you want to say it. I only had small herbivores in my park. So I had these very harmless dinosaurs there that don't really raise the fame very high, but I had a lot of them and I ran away with the game. And basically you want to have the small carnivores and the large carnivores because they score you the most points. But I didn't do any of that because, you know, I don't want my people to get eaten. So I did the little small kind of planning guys and kind of blew out the victory, which frustrated him to no end sorry ryan about that but yeah so sometimes you can do that if everyone's going left and you go right sometimes the game allows you to do that just because everyone else is fighting over the same resources and you just take the you take the path less traveled i think that's the key right because like chrissy mentioned seven wonders and the science and that's 100 percent true if nobody it's else true, goes yeah. for science right and i think i think there's a lot of games like that if if a bunch of people ignore a mechanic you can super specialize and you will win because it's a powerful mechanic. You should all yeah. be going for it, right? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think point. a lot of Euro games are like that too. Hansa Teutonica, I've done that many times where everyone's mm, going yeah. on one path and I'm just like, well, this doesn't score a lot of points, but I won't be competing. So I'll go on the bottom. And I've done that with so many different games just because you happen to be the last player. You got to do something different because. You can't scrape that bottom of the barrel too much. All right, so that's everything that's going on with our listeners. Let's get on to our acquisition disorders, Anthony. So what are you looking forward to getting to the table 
hopefully you'll play the whole game and not just one little part of it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right, so this is a game I came across while digging through the hotness list this week, preparing for future episodes. And it's called Treasure Island. It's designed by Mark Pakien, and the artwork is Vincent Dutrois, which is why it jumped out at me, of course. Its publisher is Matagot, so it is going to be released in the U.S. You know, through them via Asmodee and that little cluster. It is a game about pirates and bluffing. Uh, somebody's going to play Long John trying to mislead the other pirates as they search for his treasure. And so the hunt is going to kind of, it's going to ramp up over the course of the game. I think it says it's only 45 minutes, which sounds pretty good. And then kind of climax as Long John escapes. So if you know Treasure Island, it's going to try to follow along with that theme a little bit from the story. Um, artwork looks incredible. Board looks very vibrant and colorful, which is great. A lot of these pirate games look a little dimmer. I want I want blue seas, I want green islands, and I want colorful characters if you're going to give me pirates. So do it right. And, and the thing that really caught my attention, because I'm not a huge bluffing game guy, with a few minor exceptions, and I'm not a huge pirates guy, but the designer of this, Mark Pakian, he designed Yamatai, which was one of my favorite games from last year that kind of nobody really talked about. And so I'm pretty interested to see what his next game is. This is his second game uh, and how it kind of turns out. Combined with that artwork looks great to me so it says 2018 i don't know exactly when this thing is set to release probably end of the year but looking pretty good looking forward to checking it out that's treasure island all right well a game that i'm looking at on kickstarter is a game that's kind of become a modern day classic and that's alhambra now alhambra you all know it's been out there from queen games for quite some time and it's a classic gateway game this game was developed quite some time ago from dirk hen I think it's way back in 2003 or so, and it's basically about building a Alhambra. It's built, building a little city that you're placing tiles in order to score points by connecting different walls to kind of build up your city and by collecting the most of a particular color building so that you win that bonus. And it's a really fun game, collecting cash, buying buildings back and forth. And it really has a nice, nice table presence. Well, they're having a Alhambra Designer's Edition. Now, this isn't a super crazy one, whether it's like, you know, just four or $500, but it's definitely an upgraded edition. So if you haven't picked up Alhambra previously, this is definitely something that I would recommend. Now, there can be a problem as far as Queen Games is concerned, where their games come out and then eventually those games go on Amazon at a very low price, so you're kind of wondering why you picked that up. This one might be of interest to you because if it doesn't include everything, which it may not eventually in the retail version, what's special about this edition, whether you have the original or you don't have the original, is that there are nine exclusive expansions from famous designers. So if you are a big board game nut like Anthony and I are, you might be interested in playing with the expansion that Mike Elliott developed or Stefan Feld or Dirk Hen, who actually developed the game himself. He created another expansion. Now, I already have the big box, so I have a lot of the other kind of mini Queenie expansions that come with this game. But I'll have to say that these nine additional expansions look really interesting, and I like to have these from different designers to see their take on a classic game. We've seen this in some other games I think Stegmeier has had an expansion from Uwe Rosenberg in Viticulture. So I really want to kind of like see more of this in the future. And if you haven't picked up Alhambra, this brand new edition with upgraded components and new artwork and just bigger pieces is available for you. And if you already picked up Alhambra, 
and you're really into board gaming to the insane level that Anthony and I are, you might be interested in just picking up the small expansion, which includes these nine expansions. This campaign will wrap up on Friday, May 25th. Man, like every now and then we do one of these acquisition disorders, and I'm like, man, he sold me first. <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. And I'm on here, I'm like, I gotta back this now. Alabra is one of those games that, like, there aren't a lot of games I play with my wife or family in general, you know, either my kids. And Alabra is one that does come out a lot. Uh, just the base. Don't have any of the extra stuff. Just the base game. I've always meant to pick up the the big box. Missed it when it was super cheap on Amazon. But this might do it. It's a little Stefan Feld in my Alhambra. I might have to do that. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So that's everything for Acquisition Disorders. Now on to our At the Table. So, Anthony... What have you been getting to the table this week? Okay, so nothing super new. We've probably talked about this a little bit, but this time of year, there's not a ton of new stuff. Don't worry. Wait another month, and it'll <laughs> all be here. So <laughs> it's coming. And so you can tell because I talked about two co-op games last week, which is like, what? That's not me at all. So back to the Euros, back to the cards. I'm going to talk about City of Iron, second edition. Uh, this is a game that was kickstarted. Uh, the second edition, at least, was kickstarted. Uh, about a year and a half ago and shipped to everybody uh, last year in 2017. So I've had this for a little bit, didn't really have a chance to get it out to the table much, uh, but had a chance to play it recently again and get a better sense of the game. And the, the the idea of this game is very interesting. You have a lot of different things going on. You have your own deck of cards and your own race of people. And everybody has roughly the same cards with like three or four unique cards in their deck. So some of these, you know, groups of people are more military oriented, some are more building, some are more science, but they have a lot of the same ideas and cards. You're going to have a land in front of you. The land can handle a certain number of, you know, upgrade cards that you're going to purchase. Each round, you're going to take three actions and then you take those in turns. So you don't just take your three actions, you take turns, but three actions per round over seven rounds. So 21 total actions in the game, plus any free actions you manage to build up from your cards. Uh, So you're going to purchase these cards. They're going to cost a certain amount of money plus a certain number of symbols. You need to have those symbols on your cards. And then you're going to put them in your tableau. And the these different cards are going to do one of several things. They're going to give you new income. They're going to give you different resources. And there are, I think, eight or nine different resource tracks on the board. And then they're going to allow you to you know upgrade and do additional things. So as you add these cards to your tableau and as you get these extra idea, you know, these extra abilities and upgrades and things you're able to do as the game progresses, you're going to score points at the end of every round based on where you're at. So uh, let's say you are first in three of these different resource tracks. You're going to score points in round three, five, and seven based on those positions. You're also going to get money every time because you're in the lead in those areas. So it's important to kind of manage and maximize how many of these different resources you have a lot of, but you can't do all of them, especially in a four-player game. So you have to kind of keep it close. Um, there's also a military component. There's different locations you can go to and conquer. Uh, people can conquer the military locations you have from you. Uh, it doesn't really hurt you very much, but it does you know, benefit them. It's a little bit harder to do, though, once you've already conquered a location. You can also explore and get new land tiles to put in front of you that let you get more cards. So it's a, in its essence, this is a tableau builder with deck building in it because you'll be the really interesting part of this game is at the end of every round, you're going to go through this separate deck of unpurchased cards, the entire deck, and you're going to buy whichever ones you want. And the cards are each going to cost a combination of money and or 
uh, books. And books are these tokens that you can purchase um, or earn through other card abilities, but they're relatively hard to get. And each of these cards then goes into your hand uh, for the next round. You can use it immediately. And when you use a card, it goes into the discard pile. And when you have to flip your discard pile, you just flip it. You don't shuffle it. So it's important the order in which you use your cards. When you purchase a card, maybe you want to use it right away so you can use it again more quickly. Lots of things to kind of keep in mind. It's a very, very interesting game in that there's six different actions you can take you know, plus, you know, kind of the throwaway money action on dozens of different cards to look through, all these different locations. There's so much stuff going on. But at the end of the day, it's fairly straightforward what you want to do. You want to build up your tableau. You want to attack when it makes sense. And you want to get as many points as possible in those scoring rounds. So it's uh, it feels, it's a funny game because it feels heavier than it actually is because there's so much stuff there. You know, it's a three-weight game, and you look at it and you think, oh, this is probably going to take an hour and a half, two hours, but it's a bit longer than that. It's a two and a half, three-hour game, and that's just because you have those seven rounds, and in every single one of those rounds, except the last one, everybody's going through their decks and upgrading. If you've played the first edition, there's a few changes. They've changed some of the expert cards and rebalanced them. They got rid of an expansion town card deck. They simplified the player order auction, so... Before there was an actual auction, now it's just a matter of whoever went last gets to pick first this time where they want to go. There is a bonus coin option instead of pirates. Little stuff, but it, it all does make a difference and kind of streamline the game a little bit. I enjoy it. I think it's a fun game. I'm not a huge fan of, of Red Raven games uh, in general. Um, I don't dislike them, but I'm not like super high on them like some people are. Uh, but this is probably one of my you know more favorite of his games. So for me, it's a solid play. It doesn't really feel like a civilization or city building game. It just, it feels like a deck building tableau builder, but those aren't bad things necessarily. It's just a little bit longer than it needs to be for what it is. So that's City of Iron, second edition, well worth tracking down. If you like his games, if you like Ryan Lockett's games, it's beautiful and it plays well enough. It's a little bit long, that's all. Yeah, I think I have the same feeling about his games in general. They're so imaginative and so innovative and it always seems like they need one more edit to kind of go through them. So it's been kind of a standard practice that when the game comes out, I almost wait for a second edition or an upgraded edition just because I think he gets it right or tends to get a, a better handle on the second time around. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, for some of the games, for sure. You know, you have like Above and Below and then Near and Far. And Near and Far is, I haven't actually played Near and Far because Above and Below I was a little sure. cold on. But everybody said, oh, Near and Far is so much better. I'm like, okay, well, that should have come out first. Um, there are some exceptions. You know, I've heard people say Islebound is pretty solid, just as is. And there's no second edition of that. And I'm being perfectly honest, I have not played all of this game just because the few that I have played, I was never like blown away by. But this is a game especially as an upgrade over the first edition, which was even a little bit longer and more convoluted, I think does manage to streamline those things and is worth checking out. Well, I did actually get a new game to the table. Once again, thanks to our friend Ryan from The Whole Card. This is Manhattan Project 2, Minutes to Midnight, the board game. Now, this is, I, I guess, would be a sequel. It's not an expansion, but a sequel to Manhattan Project that was kind of famously known for its worker placement game in which you were building bombs to load on planes, and it was kind of a race game, which whoever could kind of 
put together the best building system and then sometimes steal technology. The game was interesting. It was thematic. The theme was a little troubling. And I remember seeing this game. I remember seeing Manhattan Project 2, Minutes to Midnight, on Kickstarter. And actually, in fact, it was the box cover that kind of pushed me off because the box cover had this family and this mother kind of grasping her children and, and a baby as, <laughs> I guess, IBM nuclear missiles kind of shoot out from their backyard. So I, I guess they're trying to give you an idea of like the threat that's here. But as far as a game is concerned, it, it might have like pushed the theme a little too far from my backing. Now, when I got a chance to play this game, it really isn't about blowing up other people or are these missiles actually firing off at all. It's about the nuclear proliferation that has been going on since the Cold War and continues to go on. So if you played Manhattan Project, the game plays somewhat similar. Once again, you start with a certain number of workers and you're going to place them on a main board. Now, what's a little different here is you're going to train your workers. So you're going to place your workers and train them up into politicians or spies or generals. And that's important because the politicians are going to be needed to get money. They're going to be needed to work the UN. And it's also important because your player board is going to have an area for it, which is a third world country area where their politicians from another player are going to be placed there in order to put nukes in that third world country next to yours. So you might want to think like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Russia was trying to put missiles next to the U.S. And obviously U.S. is not happy about that. So you can push them off to keep them from scoring additional victory points. But this game is a little bit of a kind of a point salad kind of situation because there's a lot of ways to score points in this game. Now, your military generals are going to allow you to obviously do a number of things that are going to allow you to deploy these different nukes in different areas, which include subs, which you will play on other player boards along with decoys. So they won't be sure exactly which cards have the nukes and which cards don't. And there are also bomber tiles, which if they're small, they can be placed in your, in your sky. Or if they're big, you can place them on other people's sky. That's going to kind of keep them from scoring additional victory points. There's also defense systems that are going to help you keep other people from scoring points in your particular area. And there's also ICBMs. You'll be able to score victory points by putting nukes in your own area. And of course, there's the traditional pick up a building, place a building, in your area in order to activate the building by using workers. Now, this game includes using countries, which was an expansion from the original Manhattan Project. So each player is going to have a particular country. It's gonna give them a special ability. And it has, I guess, the majority of nuclear countries that we know today and a couple of other ones that may or may not have nukes, but who knows? They have special abilities as well. This game is really interesting as far as using a lot of the mechanics that you previously used in Manhattan Project, which is trying to manage your workers to the best of your ability to maximize the efficiency. What I liked about this more than Manhattan Project is the fact that when you play Manhattan Project, you can bomb other people's building to slow them down. You can place fighter jets to kind of keep your, your sky safe from having someone else bomb you. But really, no one really does that very much. Here, Placing nuclear submarines in someone else's waters does do something to keep them from scoring victory points. By placing bombers in the sky, 
does keep them from doing that, from creating fighters to stop their bombers, does do something. So the game overall has a lot more to it as far as thematic presentation and interesting mechanics. You can scan for subs to get rid of those subs from your waters. They can go back to someone's hands. And basically the game is going to play out that each of these different areas that you're going to score victory points will score at different times. So you have a particular purpose to shoot towards. And then at the end of the game, everything scores a second time. So you want to get that stuff out again. I enjoyed this game. The theme, once again, is a little problematic, but not over that line. And since it does a couple of things better than Manhattan Project, I liked it more. But on the downside, the game took a lot, lot longer than Manhattan Project. Where Manhattan Project was a race, this one, you had to meet all those particular goals. So things kind of slowed down a little bit, and you really had to shoot toward those particular goals. So for Manhattan Project 2, Minutes to Midnight, I'm going to give it a play. I think it's something that's worth your time sitting down. But for the length, probably not worth a buy unless this is really a game that you do enjoy very much. Man, I, I still haven't gotten into the whole Manhattan Project thing. Like, I feel like I would really like the original game. It sounds like everything I like in a Euro. And I just, I don't know, something about that theme just... All these themes where you murder all these things and something about nuclear weapons where you're just like, eh, it's too close to home. Yeah, I mean, both of these games, you don't actually use the nukes. So it's still it, it's still a little like queasy kind of thing. Like, yeah, this doesn't seem great, but I'm not actually employing any of this stuff. Even myself, I only picked up my hand project when it was on one of these kind of crazy Barnes & Noble sale. And I still haven't opened my box. It's great mechanically at least as far as a worker placement race game is concerned but beyond that i don't know um yeah no it's a funny thing i just uh i will play it the original one at least uh this game you know if it's at a con or something i'll give it a shot it sounds like from the reviews i've seen and in yours it, it sounds like a game that i would probably enjoy mechanically speaking i just i wish all the all of them were like energy empire i know it's a completely different game but sure the game is so good to me yeah, it's a much, much better game. So if you do have to pick out of Manhattan Project, Manhattan Project 2, and obviously Energy Empire, Energy Empire wins by a large amount, not just because of the theme, which is significantly different, but just a much better game. That being said, Energy Empire was not created by the designer. It was brought in and kind of rethemed. Yeah, that's true. It does kind of, I mean, it uses a little manhattan project meeple guys but i don't know yeah i mean it's uh i'll definitely try to get down soon that's for sure all right so that's everything for our at the table now on to our feature review so we talked about this from the start it's the two juggernauts of simon miniature gaming at its best giant miniatures slapping it out at the table eric lang doing his best to make you buy an endless number of plastic pieces i think even recently <laughs> One of the uh, insert companies showed off one of their big inserts, which I think was a $350 insert to kind of pack up Rising Sun. And Good God. <laughs> yes. And you know what? It doesn't seem crazy because you probably spent about that much on the miniatures. So, yes, we are talking Blood Rage versus Rising Sun, Eric Lang, Simon Games. Anthony, where do we get started here? Yeah, so we have... Two games here, and like so, most people coming in, if you're not super aware of these, you didn't back them on Kickstarter, you think, oh, it's like the Japanese version of Blood Rage. So, 
before we dive down any rabbit holes here, let's just get this out of the way. Blood Rage is more of a, you know, uh, dude's on a map, and it's all about fighting. And there's a little bit of area control there, but it's really about building up your hand of cards, spending your resources carefully, upgrading your various abilities, and winning specific fights, not necessarily controlling these swaths of land. The difference when you compare that to, say, Rising Sun, is Rising Sun is a little bit more about controlling that area. And there's going to be different land areas that score each round, and you want to be there and have, you know, the control over them. But you also want to hopefully make the right, you know, connections with different people and work together so you can take more actions in the game and ideally, you know, build up all these various things that you can do to score additional points. It's not the same game. It's like a spiritual successor. And thematically, obviously, you have the, the Norse gods versus the Japanese, but you also have a very different aesthetic look the miniatures have clearly come along a little bit since since we talked about blood rage the rising sun miniatures are in my opinion the best simon has done yet period they're beautiful amazing and there are a lot more of them uh, blood rage was not quite the mega huge massive sprawling kickstarter that uh simon has kind of become known for and because of that it's it feels like a more contained game so that's kind of where we're starting from when you're looking at these two games. The real question is, how do they play this different? And then which one is best for you? And do you need both of them? Or could you get away with one or the other? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point as far as these are Amerithrash games. But they're not. They're Euro games as far as a lot of the mechanics are concerned. Blood Rage, right, Anthony? Let's talk about Blood Rage for a little bit. Card drafting, right? That's a very big part of the game. So you're going to see miniatures on the board. You're going to battle out. But really, you want to draft properly. You want to build up your engine of rage and the other different different mechanics you can do. You want to meet objectives. So be on the right spot when something happens. Or kill off all your guys because you have the Loki strategy. And that's going to score you victory points. So victory as far as knocking out of the miniatures with your different battle cards aren't absolutely necessary for victory in the game. It's, in fact, sometimes going to lose you the game because sometimes people see miniatures and they think risk when they should be thinking Euro game kind of like victory point condition situation. That's a huge factor here, too. Like, people still, when I bring Blood Rage to the table, you know, two-plus years later, you set it down and everybody thinks, oh, okay, I know this kind of game. I played Risk in college. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's, this is this game is more about the card drafting and the manipulation of the different abilities and making sure you have some overarching strategy where you're using similar god abilities to chain together and then that will impact what you do on the map you know what you do on the map is important but it's not always the same sometimes you want to be in specific areas sometimes based on you know the goal cards you might have sometimes you want to kill as many people as you can because that's the strategy you've built up. And sometimes, like you said, you've got, you're have got Loki and you just want to die. And you <laughs> yeah. chase people away because of that, because they know that and they you know avoid trying to kill you. It's very unique in that way. And I think there's always at least one person when I'm teaching new people this game who doesn't quite get that and is not happy about it because it isn't what it looks like. And sure. I think that is one thing both of these games have in common. They're not what they look like. Yeah. And as, we, as I said before, Blood Rage, think card drafting think building up your machine building up your available action points that's going to be essential objective completion that's essential 
very, very essential parts of the game. Not that you can't have fun slapping people around and playing your battle cards to kind of bolster up your army, but card drafting, engine building, and objectives. All right, so let's talk about Rising Sun. Now, Rising Sun does take a lot of things from Blood Rage, but there are some things that are different. So right off the bat, I mentioned card drafting. There is no card drafting in Rising Sun, but yet there is something kind of close to it because in effect, what you're going to do is you're going to have a certain number of actions available to you based on these tiles. And those tiles were going to determine not only what you can do, but what everyone else can do on the table. So you have, still have the map on the board, the miniatures on the board, the monsters on the board, but based upon what action you take, you'll get a special ability along possibly with your partner, which once again is another special take on the kind of like miniatures on the board game. And that's going to play a bigger part there. Now, once again, objective completion is key, but there really isn't an engine building so much, but there is secret bidding. And based upon how much money you have and where you place the money, you might want to win different parts of a battle or the war completely in order to get special abilities, in order to get extra points, or to get the token from that particular area. Because a lot of things are going to score you points in this game again, too. Right, Anthony? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that's one thing you'll know when you're talking about an Eric Lane game. It's not, there's no, like, one path to victory. It It's going to depend on what your clan is. It's going to depend on what upgrades you pick up. It's going to depend on where the scoring happens on the map, uh, which tiles you end up playing. There's so many different things that impact scoring here that, you know, you have to be kind of on your toes at all times. You can't just decide at the beginning of the game, this is my strategy. I mean, you can do that. You have the clan abilities, and certainly that's a way to go, but... You also want to adjust based on what comes out. Yeah, so there is some significant differences between the two games. They look very similar as far as the board's concerned. The miniatures that you have as far as your clan's concerned. The monsters are different as far as and appropriate as far as their different genres are concerned. But what do you want to do? Do you want to negotiate as far as with your kind of colleague or temporary colleague about what action to play? and pick out the particular cards that you want to kind of draw that turn or recruit that turn or, you know, be able to move that turn. Those things are important because not every action is going to come out that particular round. So there is more interactivity with other players throughout the game because you can break alliances and that's going to play a big role because if you play the betray action then you're going to be able to do something as that might be beneficial if it comes towards the end, but in the beginning, it might work against you. So you might be helping someone else towards their victory or helping your ally get just far enough and then you betray them at the last second. So a lot more social play comes into play here and when is the appropriate action to take at the appropriate time where, once again, going back to Blood Rage for a second, it's definitely a more solitude kind of situation. You are battling, but you're battling on your own. Here in Rising Sun, you are never truly alone because alliances are very much a part of the game. Yeah, and that's a huge part of it. You know, like, do you like the social interaction or do you want to, you know, buckle down, stare at your cards and kill everybody else's guys? You know, huge difference in terms of like the actual social interaction play of the game. So when it comes to these two games, Blood Rage being, I guess, a little more Eurocentric with the card drafting, 
the engine building and the objective completion versus Rising Sun, which has some of those elements, but adds in blind bidding, alliance building, alliance breaking. So, Anthony, if it's going to be Blood Rage versus Rising Sun for you, what is it going to come down to? Such a good question. I mean, when uh, Rising Sun first went up, I, I was hesitant whether I should back it because I'm like, oh, is it an iteration on Blood Rage? I now know it's not, but that's an important factor for me too. It's if it was an iteration, if it was just a better version of that, then it'd be easy, right? But they're not. They're different games. And for me, the the groups I play with and the timeframes I play with in Blood Rage, it just it still fits. You know, years later, it still fits. It's a relatively quick, compelling, miniature-filled Euro with those dudes on a map elements, and it really works with a lot of different play styles and groups. Rising Sun, on the other hand, you need the right people. You need the right space. It takes up more space, and you need the right people that are willing to have those negotiations because the game really is going to come alive when you're able to sit down and discuss and you know negotiate back and forth in terms of what you're going to do. So. You know, if I could only own one of these, I'd probably stick with Blood Rage for that reason. That's no knock on Rising Sun. It's just a matter of like, which one do I think I can get to the table more often? I think earlier when we were talking about our Facebook question of the week, we talked about what game element can you ignore and still win the game. When you play Blood Rage, it's really hard to ignore any particular element. Obviously, the objective completion is necessary. So that's going to score you a lot of points. So you can kind of avoid some battles, but... If your objectives say you need to be in an area, then you need to battle it out. Rising Sun, on the other hand, you can avoid large sections of the game. You could avoid claiming different areas and scoring those different points. You could just be all about collecting virtues. You can collect certain cards. They're going to score you different victory points and kind of build up your victory point engine that way. As you said, Anthony, if you're playing Rising Sun, it comes down to having the right group a lot more than Blood Rage. Now, that being said, it's not a party game or a social deduction game where it's all about the people at the table. But I have played many games of Rising Sun where, depending on people's alliances or inability or desire not to break those alliances, they kind of kept themselves from a victory or allowed somebody to win because they just kept aligning themselves with the same person again and again. So for me, because I typically like to build my own engine and I typically like to have more control of my game state, I'm going to go with Blood Rage as well, Anthony. Oh man, we're supposed to fight about this, aren't we? Versus? Well, we're. it looks like we're supposed to fight about it because it's a versus game, but it's very objective-based and I think we've completed the objective, <laughs> which is Blood Rage is better. Yes, but only a little. Like Only a little bit. I mean, they're both phenomenal, beautiful productions from Eric Lang. And if you own one, you can definitely own the other. They do feel different enough, so they both have a place on your shelf. I think Anthony and I probably will both agree. It's tremendous fun. And as completionists, we want to own every extra miniature possible. But it's not necessarily needed in order to enjoy the game for sure all right so that's everything for this week until next time this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you a seat at the table